Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast here with uh, sort of a late 420 episode. Isn't that right, Noah Ballard, my co-host? That's right, Chance Solem Pfeiffer. Yeah, we're here to do a little post-420 retrospective. Yeah. Um, for those of you who may have watched some 420 movies and then maybe been like a bit baffled by them as a genre. Sure, yeah. Um, I know that in New York they had a big screening for uh, Half Baked at the Roxy Hotel. Yeah. On 420, and I'm sure that these other movies that we did also must have had screenings somewhere. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so we're doing three cult weed movies today, um, and to be upfront about it, yeah, Half Baked, as you mentioned, from 1998, uh, Bong Water from 1997, a little known picture made right here in my fair Portland, and a late edition, Get Out of Here, Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, Get In Here, Method Man and Red Man's How High. We, How high indeed. <laughs> Before we get into these movies. Yeah, I have I have a lot of like prelude questions. Yeah, so do I. Well, I mean, let me quickly sort of pull back the curtain here to maybe talk about the ways in which these movies are dated. And if you don't like that word, kind of of a time. I had a... Oh, yeah. Until I found our, our terrific guest today, Jay Horton, who talks on the show about Bongwater. That's coming up in a bit. Um there were not a lot of like previews for like, here's your 420 movies. Here's this, here's that. Um, what I found a lot of was things like, you know, at the high times there being like, nobody cares about these old like stoner movies that are about the high. Like here's a list of some like visually ambitious movies that will go well with this strain of weed. Like one of the interesting things we'll to talk about might be how specialized weed culture has become since the days of just being like, this is a subculture in a windowless room where people just right. like laugh at each other's jokes nonsensically. Well, I just think it's interesting. Like my first question for you is along those lines, like who slash what is a stoner? And I think like that's those, those move like these three movies are sort of all asking that question. Yeah. Like if you like rip back the reefer madness kind of paranoia that this country has routinely like directed towards, like weed culture and weed subculture. I think all three of these movies make a case that sure, like weed people and stoners are going to like be silly and goofy, but ultimately you guys were just people like you and we'll get to the happy ending our own way. Yeah, for sure. And in fact, you know, they might need something else in their lives. I think all the protagonists Mm -hmm. of these movies find that like, Oh, weed is not enough. It's not bad, but it's not enough. Well, that leads to my second question, is that what do stoners, like, want from a motion picture? Sure, sure. Like, are these, and I think there's two fundamental questions here, like, are these movies about stoners, or are these movies for stoners? And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Nope, nope. Um, Should we answer, I mean, do you want to answer that one by one as we go? Yeah, let's uh, do it. Because I think that's a Venn diagram you could apply, apply to any of these. Absolutely. Um, so, Chance, had you ever seen Half Baked before we decided on this particular genre? Surprisingly, uh, no. Chappelle Show was some very formative years for me, but I never checked it out. I wasn't, like, such a huge Chappelle Show fan. I mean, I, like, watched it when people had it on. I feel like it was, like, really reaching its, like, sort of end of being popular, like, when I was early in college. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I saw it incidentally, but I never saw i mean i I like worked at a video store and would see people check out half baked but i've never i had never even encountered what the premise of half baked was and it's a real premise movie well kind of that still takes a long time to get going yeah the the premise is pretty well let's get into can you synopsize because i don't know that i can um yeah so you know it's the first it's the first uh you know written feature from 
uh, Dave Chappelle and Neil Brennan, who are, of course, the, the minds behind Chappelle show, um, directed by Tamara Davis. What happens in this movie is that a group of, of four friends... Um, ha- Living in New York, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you where. They seem to do a lot of business in Manhattan, but I don't see how they live there. Um, it's one of these like weird New York movies that looks like it was shot in L.A. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point. Um, anyway. So, yeah, these, these four friends uh, just have this earth shattering high that uh, sets them all on the on the path of, of stoner life for the remainder. When they're when they're teenagers, they get high initially. Um, right. There's a prologue when they're teenagers and much like, um, you know, what's that movie? uh where they kill the guy with the sleepers, the grocery cart. Yeah. Like sleepers or something like this is their, the moment that fused them together was like being high at a convenience store when they were teenagers and really fused them because they live together and appear to only hang out together in this apartment. And, and it's, uh, it's Dave Chappelle. It's uh, Jim Brewer. It's uh, Harlan Jim Williams Brewer. and it's oh, Guillermo Diaz. It's just like a, it's a veritable who's not <laughs> of who's who. Um, like you, it's it is a ragtag cast. They get high every single night, and then somebody's on food duty, and uh, Harlan Williams is on food duty duty on this particular night uh, when he is you know high out of his mind and feeds all of their munchie supply to a police horse, a diabetic police horse that then dies, <laughs> and he's jailed uh, right. for a long time with a million dollar bail, and so his his stoner friends have to have to raise $100,000 to get him out of jail. And their only means to do so is by stealing very like potent FDA weed from the research facility where Dave Chappelle is a janitor. So that's the custodian. That's the premise. That's right. Sorry. Janitor, <laughs> if I want to be a dick about it. Yo, who's our munchies tonight, yo? Make sure chocolate. Gotta have chocolate. Graham crackers. Pizzas, man. Celery, grape jelly, peanut butter, popcorn, beef jerky with water. Whole lot of water. You must have been so hungry. But now they're in trouble. Oh, oh I just gave him some candy and some chips and some pink popcorn. And- All we gotta do is raise ten percent of one million, yo. Which, by our calculations, is fucking impossible, man. So that's sort of the flimsy premise of the movie. But then it also becomes a story of Dave Chappelle's character, Thurgood Jenkins. Um. He whether or not he's going to have a relationship with one Mary Jane. That's right. Uh, Mary Jane Potman, played by <laughs> Rachel True. None of those sound like real names, even a real name. Uh, right. So it sort of then becomes this other thing where, because all of these movies need to have that moment where it bumps up against like a foil, and the foil is sort of, in these first two movies, represented by women, and then in the third one, which we'll get to, which is a whole interesting conversation, is represented just by, like, people who are lame. Yes. Yep. Straight edges. But in this one, the foil to the movie is, yes, their their desire is to get this money and to sell this weed and whatever, but their the ultimate goal of Dave Chappelle's protagonist is to, like, settle down and, like, have this heteronormative sort of life with this woman, right? Yeah. You know, they're living the most unambitious life possible, you know, paycheck to paycheck, Dave just, Chappelle and company, yes. just to get high, yes. But I also think you can kind of feel like his frustration with like how dumb this movie is. There are times where I'm like, this must have bored Dave Chappelle, even though he wrote it. There's nothing incisive right. about it whatsoever. Well, that's the thing. Like, it's almost making fun of its own premise. But the yeah. premise is so absurd that it doesn't feel like like it doesn't make fun of itself the way like a 21 Jump Street does, you know, when Nick Offerman's like, we're rebooting a program like this one, like even in like the interaction between the him and the scientist, like the scientist character's name is scientist. And he like right. direct addresses him several times. <laughs> and it's like, why are you making fun of this premise that like you probably came up with? That's not like a Hollywood, this is not a Hollywood trope. Like, what are you making fun of? So let's talk about whether it's, it's you know, is it about stoners or is it for stoners or, or is it both? On this one, this was the one where I felt like you might have to be high to watch this. Because I wasn't high when I watched any of these. But one of the things that I felt like bugged me about it was just 
there's not enough jokes. I wanted it to go twice as fast and have twice as many bits. And I thought like you might have to be chemically slowed down to like enjoy this. Cause you just have these bits that they're, they're okay. They're okay. Bits like the, like the dog getting high or, you know, anyone or anything getting high. Um, Right, but you just don't have that that thing in a Dave Chappelle sketch where it's just like, look at the sign over there, look at this guy. Oh, isn't this weird fourth person in the sketch have a weird line? There's just there's no yeah. like busyness to it. I wanted more chaos, and it definitely doesn't have like the weird comedic ambition of even like How High. Mm-mm. Like How High, just like by the end of that movie, that movie's totally fucking bonkers. It's insane, and but this movie's not totally fucking bonkers. No, it's just like. It's just like lesser Dave Chappelle. Yeah. It gets very bored of that premise, right? It doesn't... Oh, it yeah. Does well, not... like I said, it throws it off for this, like, romantic movie. Yeah. To the extent that you they, you don't even see them get Kenny out of jail. The whole point no. of the movie... It's, yeah, it weirdly, like, it's just like, no, I'm kind of bored of that. We're going to do, like, an action spoof, and then, you know, Dave is going to make his choice about whether he wants to live with Mary Jane. This genre also has, like, a bad habit of being, like... Oh, and also Jamie Kennedy's in this movie, or like also Jack Black's in this movie, or like also Mike Epps is in this movie. That's true. So like, I'm willing to forgive the fact that it's sort of all over the place. Yeah, but I mean, you can. See, I I totally agree with what you're saying there, but I think one of the things that it does have going for it is is you sort of already understand how even at this early stage that like Dave Chappelle could make him his block party because he can get anyone he can get everyone and some of the cameos are really good i think my favorite is stephen baldwin um being the macgyver smoker they're describing like the different kind of people and what they use weed for and john stewart who's just i love him to death but he's a horrible actor no this is a terrible terrible turn for (laughs) like it's a good thing he got into the daily show because he never would have made you know he's kind of brilliant in the faculty i've never seen that what you know, he gets like stabbed through the eyeball. It's like really, and like keeps moving around for a bit. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So I think the, like the, the technical problem with this movie is that because Dave Chappelle's not really like doing stuff off of anyone, yeah. which you kind of need for a, an, you know, 84 minute movie. Yep. <laughs> um, it's just like, he doesn't try very hard because he has our attention anyway, because everyone else around him is, you know, bad. You know what's so charming about Head of State is it's just like right. this is like a stand-up comedian whose worldview, even if I don't agree with all of it, like I find it incredibly interesting and it's coherent and it's thorough and it's it's got these weird corners to it. And this just right. does not feel like Dave Chappelle's worldview. No, that's a good yeah. way to put it. That is a good way to put it. It feels like very like what it, what it's trying to say is very muddled. Yeah. And that's, I think, my my biggest issue with it. And it's hard to, like, take its politics seriously because, like, it doesn't have a point. Right, right. So this one feels like it is a movie about stoners, to answer your question. Sure. And for stoners? Because you'd ha- I don't have to know. be high to find it funny? Hypothetically, if I was high during this movie, I don't think I would have enjoyed it either. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's an interesting alternate reality to consider. Which, which leads us... So maybe, do you want to go to that uh, pre-canned recording of us uh, talking about how we rate movies on this podcast? Well, I mean, if you're new to the podcast, you gotta know how we rate movies. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy, things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again, like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too, things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good Bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good Bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say... I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, 
bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. Yeah, there's a part of me that wants to say that this... You want to say that it's bad good, but it's actually bad bad. I actually might want to say that it's good bad. I want to say that like maybe the pieces are there to like make... None of your argument has been about the pieces being there. You've been agreeing with me that the pieces aren't there. Remember? Do you remember the preceding 15 minutes when we like looked at each individual piece and you said they were all bad? No, nah, man, I don't remember 15 minutes ago. No, uh, I think it's I think it's great, great. I actually think it might be pretty good, man. Um, yeah, I'm Chance. It's good, good. Yeah, no, never mind. It's bad, bad. It's bad, bad. It is bad, bad. Mm. I want to love it, just like I want to love most of Dave Chappelle's uh, current stand-up special, except when he gets to the weird hot-button issues that he has sort of conservative views on. Yep. So let's move now to the 1998 comedy Bong Water. This movie's so many things, and I'm I'm so glad that there's like a person out there. Because I was like surfing on the... What, what led to me suggesting this genre was i was like surfing around the internet for movies so i could text you and be like we should do a 420 episode and i was like weed movies and then there was this one called bong water and it was like the third or fourth one down and i clicked on it and i was like luke wilson jack black like Brittany murphy like what is this movie and it's this totally like bizarre movie that like a has a pretty tragic sort of production mythology Mm -hmm. But, like, also is not quite, like, bad or good enough maybe to, like, have anyone care about that. Exactly. That's, it's, and one of the interesting things to say about it is, like, it's, like, this cult movie that's not a cult movie because... It's a cult movie that, like, is not that good. Yeah. And it's, it's not that good because it's a comedy that just simply isn't funny. Sure, sure. Uh, And, like, the guest will talk about this a little bit, too. I really liked that guy. I, I wish I was like in the room with you guys. We had a great chat in a. It sounded, it sounded wonderful. In a very very large bar here in Portland called the Spare Room, I met up with uh, Jay Horton, who's a contributor to the same Alt Weekly that I am, Willamette Week, uh, and he writes for Pace Magazine as well, does some album reviews. Um, but yeah, we talked about this movie and just how it got lost and how it was so easily lost and why people uh, don't care but are sort of interested when they have the experience like you did of finding it as the fourth result under weed movies or something like that. Um, but let's synopsize it before we talk to Jay. Yeah, let's let's do that. So basically, the movie begins like as a Scorsese film where oh, yeah, yeah. we're at the sort of a climactic moment where Luke Wilson's in a fight with some woman who storms out and then he leaves or no, he leaves first and then she leaves and she notices that like the living room's on fire because of his bong yep. and she doesn't do anything about it and leaves. And then like we watch over the title sequence as the house literally burns to the ground. Yes. While he's at uh, the strip club, Mary's club, which is still a thing here in Portland. So Luke Wilson playing David is like your pretty quintessential mid-90s Portland weed dealer. Mm-hmm. And he like lives in this house, this like nice, Nice-ish. what is it, craftsman house? Yeah. yeah. And like has this life and has his like drawings up and like, yeah, like fashions himself like a bit of an artist. A bit, but privately. But privately. And then he's just like, a, but he's like, he makes money with weed. But it seems like at the beginning he's like trying to get out the game. Mm-hmm. Does it? Because, like, people are calling him, and he's like, leave me alone. I don't do that anymore. Oh, yeah, that's right. That is an interesting... The voicemails are weird. This movie is a... It's a garbled voicemail of a movie. Who are you? Between an edgy girl... I want to stage an artistic revolution. Really? And a laid-back guy. If you want to crash here, you know, you're welcome. True love. We only met about 20 minutes ago, but I already feel like I know you. Is a real trip. <laughs> Sorry, that was just my evil twin. I wanna sink to the Nothing could come between them. I wanna sink. Except. Uh. 
so you should also know that this movie is like no one gives a shit about this movie at all. Like it's just free on YouTube. That's right. Yeah, and you, you can, can watch, watch it, it in its entirety in on YouTube. Semi high quality. Yeah. You know, but it definitely looks like it's a grade above. Like this looks like it was ripped from DVD. Yeah, Luke Wilson has this weird social circle of of people who buy and smoke his weed around him and and kind of use his house as a as a social gathering place. Um, and that's that's Andy Dick and Jeremy Sisto, who are a couple in a relationship together, who seem to be like his main clients. Um, and I guess the weed and the hang is so good, they really don't want it to change. Um, and then, uh, who is it? A- Amy Locaine is like dragged in one day by Alicia Witt, who is uh, quickly becomes like our second. You say these names like they are people that you should know, <laughs> no. when they certainly are not. <laughs> But then Alicia Witz just starts hanging around the house, right? And and she and David right. like have this like they should be together, but they're they're not physical. Um, and she sort of because she wants to be with him, like takes an interest in his like his weird art, which is which is bad. It's either like bad or it's pornographic, and it leads to one of the movie's few good bits, where like there's, you know, just these portrayals of like graphic sex or fellatio and. And and she goes, aren't the women sensual? And he goes, yeah, they are really sensual. And it's just like paint. It's just painted porn. Um, right. But then, yeah. So she tries to set him up with a gallery because she's like a Portland drifter. But okay. But you've already lost me. Yeah. Because why does she do this? I think she. That's what I don't understand. She wants to be with him, and she movie. has nothing to do, which is like. And don't you think this goes back to our old friend, the female foil of the stoner movie? Because there's, she literally just becomes the antagonist because the movie needs an antagonist. Sure, sure. But then weirdly, or she's the, also the second like protagonist. We follow her. Weirdly, yeah. Because we follow her like we're supposed to care about her, but everything she does is horrible and selfish. Right, right. Well, then same for everything else in this movie. Um, but she tries to set him up with like a showing with Brittany Murphy, who's like this trust fund kid. Um, and Luke Wilson ends up hooking up with Brittany Murphy because he's a shallow asshole. And Alicia Witt flees to New York to chase her dreams. And, and then from there, we're kind of like hanging with her in New York and hanging with Luke Wilson back home. What I think is interesting to also keep in mind about this movie uh, before you talk to your guest, Chance, is that it's the it's like sort of autofiction of Michael Hornberg's uh, sexual exploits and romantic exploits with one Courtney Love. Indeed. And when researching this book on Amazon, if you notice, the first review on there uh, is five stars. Courtney Love exposed ellipses in early book about Portland's by one C.M. Watson. And the review reads, this is the first and best and most intriguing book on Courtney Love and her early psychopathic exploits. It is written as a book of fiction, but I assure you it is truly nonfiction. I should know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you're just getting into like deep 25-year-old Pacific Northwest gossip when you when you get in right. <laughs> this movie and its source material. Right. Um, but let's talk, you know, it's like if they made a movie in Lincoln about or in Omaha but the breakup of Eagle Seagull or something. <laughs> nice. Nice. Shout out to my weird Lincoln music friends who get that joke. Um okay. Let's talk to Jay Horton, shall we? Who wrote a great piece I'd love nothing for more. Willamette Week about just what the heck happened to this movie. Bad vibes. Shit! No! Good tunes. I fell in love with a baked potato. A bling bling go. And a long, strange trip. So... Your piece sort of, like, asked this question that I think people who like movies are... They, they sort of like this question. It's like a post-mortem. It's just like all the pieces were in place. You talk about the pedigree of the cast, the pedigree of the, the production, and yet like this was just a movie that did not take off. Well, there's two separate questions there. Well, I mean, in terms of why it did, was not a success, it's because the company financing it went broke, bankrupt, something in that order before distribution was ever arranged. Mm. So it just never had a chance. Big logistical problem there. And, the, I mean, I guess it did well at the Los Angeles Film Festival. That, I mean, that, that from what I could tell, the review... And also, film festivals in 97 weren't... They were important, but it wasn't quite the, you know, end-all-be-all that they are today. Not industrialized quite the same. Right. And um, 
But I mean, more to the point, it already had. I mean, someone put up the million, so it wasn't like it was going for auction, and just it sort of floundered. And that was in the, you know, right between where video was going to DVD, um, and which wherever you want to put this in, the absolute best thing that we did not have space to include. So '97, it comes out, dies. I mean, like, you know, maybe a couple screenings around the country. Pretty much on the vine. Uh, Withers on the vine, and uh, then. Goes to like you know minor video release. The rights are picked up by somebody in what seems to me like a bankruptcy auction. I don't you know don't quote me on that, but uh, and uh, they put out a quickie DVD. And then two thousand one, by that point the cast is starting to take off. That someone real wait a minute, Jack Black, Brittany Murphy, Wilson. So they put up a much more extensive. Hack cash grab with, uh, I swear to God, uh, scratch and sniff DVD cover that smells like skunkweed. Really? Yes. I mean, from what I'm told, I've seen pictures of the cover. I've not, I have not smelled it. <laughs> the other question on why it didn't succeed artistically is obviously more subjective, and I don't know that it technically failed according to what it wanted to do. I mean, what do you think this movie was going for, and how close do you think it got? That late, mid to late 90s sort of genre, for lack of a better word, you know, midway between the, uh, like, 80s artful meandering Jim Jarmusch style and then, like, mumblecore, there was something in the 90s where, you know, there's still going to be jokes and shit still happens, but Uh at the same point that it's uh, purposefully diffuse. You know, that they want to make sure that people know they're watching something that's not the old Hollywood thing. So they're not giving, you know, a tightly a tightly wound plot. Or So it just sort of seems like a romantic comedy in a bad mood. <laughs> I like that. It kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, early Bombach, but, like, without the script. You know, people just, like, show up in rooms yeah. and start talking, but, like... Right, because Bombach is... So that, that, like, kicking and screaming is, I mean... Incredible. Yeah, and uh, or even the Kevin Smith for all his problems. At least they're written. Yeah, yeah. And um, this, I was surprised how little was improvised. That wouldn't you, I mean, especially the Jack Black parts, I just thought, because Jack Black is so much funnier than everyone else in the film. Oh, yeah. And so many of the, um, that the, so many of the scenes just go nowhere. Yep. It doesn't seem a stoner movie nearly so much as just like a L.A. coke addicts. I mean, nobody's really getting that high, but they're all just in a bad mood and just a little too quick in the draw. It's true. It's true. It's not quite, um, it's not link later in, like with the hangout aspect. No. Everyone hates each other. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, this is, it was written by a guy who went to San Francisco, and it very much seems like the people in Portland who could not wait to just get the fuck out to San Francisco or LA and hated the numbed, um, you know, blithe acceptance of a small-town atmosphere that... I will say the set decoration in the recent scene was... That looked like Portland, yeah. especially the old well, Portland. Well, this is what I want to ask you, because, I, I mean, how long have you lived here, if you don't mind telling the listening audience? Oh, I've lived here for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, how do you think this movie did in terms of capturing Portland ambiance of a certain day? I never actually noticed it before, but that there is something very specific about particularly late 90s Portland... In that, uh, and I talked to the director about this because he was, you know, San Francisco and L.A. were, it's not heads and tails difference, you know, compared to Fargo or compared to Chicago or even New York, that there was very much still a sort of a West Coast loosened, for lack of a better word, hipster, as the term hipster used to be meant, atmosphere to the place, sort of enlightened um you know, the genteel poverty, bohemia, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, then, but the, the, the main difference in terms of uh, between LA and, and San Francisco, uh, or between San Francisco and LA and Portland was that in Portland, everyone had houses. Like, there just weren't apartments. So, I mean, it, it not even beyond the cheaper cost of living, you know, that where people would have to live in tenements in, in Silver Lake, that, or, you know, the Tenderloin. We don't have tenements. We just have lots and lots of big, crappy houses that were. And so because of that, the, uh, 
I, I don't think it's anything necessarily unique to the people as much as if you just have a lot of people with too much time on their hands and you give them all the space. Uh, so when you watch the film, that uh, it's these huge, you know, like craftsman houses with 10 feet ceilings, and that in every room from about, uh, just, you know, imagine a guy standing, standing in a kitchen, and every single, all the hallways, everywhere, from fridge to the walls to the, from about the guy's knees to about the top of his shoulders, is absolutely covered in stickers, paintings, sculptures, uh-huh. everything. But then anything below the knees and anything above the shoulders, totally bare walls. So you just have this, because, you know, the low-hanging fruit, that everyone wants to like make art, but nobody's willing to do any effort, even just bending down. So it's just you have this swath of busyness, and then, but that, that, that which, for all I know, you know, that, that may well exist in San Francisco as well, but they didn't have the 10-feet ceilings. Yeah, yeah. That's a great observation. Not never just something I would have noticed. Oh, that's the other. Um, I, I, I'm not. I'm going to guess you are well under fifty. Yes. They uh, did that. Do you remember when there were pot dealers? <laughs> uh, I almost don't. But this is another thing I want to ask you about because it's one of the only things that I think makes it a weed movie is just the social hub that is Luke Wilson, maybe. Yeah, in terms of the social hub. That, I mean, a dealer who has a house expects it to be a clubhouse. I mean, that's, you know, the, uh, I mean, honestly, why a lot of them would get into it, and that's why a lot of people, there is sort of a community. I was frankly surprised how much I enjoyed some of the, like, incidental comedy, given how much I didn't care at all about, like, if Luke and Alicia got together, which was the whole point of the movie. And honestly, well, I mean, for one thing, that, that like, you know, so Alicia ends up with, uh, G- uh, like, Paranoid Cokehead. Jamie Kennedy. Kennedy yeah. And then sort of aggro squatter Scott Kahn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and meanwhile, uh, um, that's uh, where Luke Wilson uh, gets cuckolded by an, an amazing Jack Flack. Yeah. That, uh, oh, and apparently the, um, like, the song he did there, that wasn't, like, backtracked. That, like, that was all live Jesus yeah. Ranch was live on Jesus Ranch. Yeah, great. So, just like first take, and it's just like, all right, do a song, and that everyone clapped, and just okay. Yeah, that uh, Jack Black is. I mean, Andy Dick is good. That the Jeremy sister was, you know, that that. I mean, one can understand why these people became comic professionals, yeah. but Jack Black is just like leaps off the screen. Jay, I wanted to ask you because you mentioned the how the just completely like residential ambiance was quintessential 90s Portland. One, I don't want to give away all the anecdotes from your piece because people should read it, but um, the house, they burned down the house. Can you yeah. tell this story? Which actually, um, just uh, the, the talk, after the show, just the David Crest, the Portlandia showrunner, um, apparently they still do that. So for any indie filmmakers in Portland, you can still go to the fire department and say, hey, do you have any houses that are coming up? And I guess that is still a thing. You can do permits. The fire department has some houses scheduled for, I mean, this one, I guess, that... Uh, oh, that's right. It had, like, lie or something in it? That a guy got evicted, and so he, you know, maybe it was a meth cooking house. But for whatever reason, it wasn't something that could just be rehabbed easily. It was a, you know, sick house, just, and... So it had to be taken care of, and so the fire department usually, like, you know, spots those out for training exercises. And in what the director was, nobody had ever heard of this before, and it seems impossible, but that the, Portland, that the Oregon Film Department and the Portland Fire Rescue Bureau, Bureau work hand-in-hand hand to help filmmakers out with this. It was honestly, like, watching that, I had no idea, and it's just like, how the hell did they get the special effects? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, that was like a house on fire, and, and lo and behold. Oh, and that was the only other. So most of the cast, yeah. So Andy Dick gets into trouble. Brittany Murphy evidently just like put on her Walkman and uh, just went around downtown just singing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Luke Wilson spent all of his time in Powell's, and uh, uh, but Jack Black, oh right, had f- uh, started obsessing with Elliot Smith like a few months before he got the role, and like just you know saw just, like saw him like an Elliot Smith tour in L.A. and so spent all of his time in Portland stalking. Uh, just like going to Satirica and going everywhere Elliot Smith might go. And we have no knowledge of Jack Black ever did track down Elliot Smith, but my God, <laughs> if I could be a fly in the wall of that. It would be amazing. Yeah. I think IMDb called it like a cult film, but like, 
I don't know if it has a cult following. Is yeah, you? Think yeah, yeah. It seems. It seems. Well, no. I mean, I I kept like writing that and erasing it because it is the type of film that if it gets written about or it gets podcasts about, then clearly, it's just the sort of film that should have a cult or you know even like again a kicking and screaming or like an Outsiders or something. I mean, why wasn't why didn't TNT show this like at three in the morning? It's like, a great question. That's a great question. And. So I guess my thought is, is it too late for it? Or is it the very fact that people will keep being like, oh, bong water, that's a weird thing. Is that, that's probably what makes a cult movie in 2017. That honestly, I think, yeah, that in 10 years, people like look that there's enough celebrities attached. And, you know, now that there's no video stores, there's no, like, everything exists as normal, then people just find it in Netflix and assume. But, I mean, it's not, it's not funny. It's not... Uh... <laughs> it's not strictly what one would call good. And uh, it was one of the... I mean, actually, I'll just say this was the first time that it seemed absolutely synonymous that someone would go back from Portland to New York and pretty much just a lateral thing. Mm. That the beginning of, you know, that, that, that one global hipster culture in which whether or not you're living in London, whether you're living in Portland, Austin, you know, there's about 10 cities in which suddenly Portland's one of them. And like, 95, we were Boise. Yeah, yeah. And anything that marijuana could have, uh, marijuana and burning down houses could have helped with so be it all for the best Jay thanks a lot man alright thank you sir was a big day on Jesus Ranch Jesus Ranch he was harvesting a big tomato that just was, seemed like a lovely man he was a great time thanks Jay it was much appreciated you can read his work uh, in Willamette Week um well, you had a great line. You texted me and you said, I think I like this more than I want to. And that also felt like my relationship to it. Well, it's weird because like scene to scene, and I feel like I I disagree with Jay like a little bit about it, like not doing much. Like I think each individual, I think it has the opposite problem of Jay's problem with it. I think scene to scene, it's pretty smart. And like when things get boring, they just cut to somewhere else and some other person in some weird scenario. Mm. Like, the Scott Kahn thing is, like, really funny. Yes. And the Jamie Kennedy thing is, like, pretty funny. And the Jack Black thing is hysterical. And I think Brittany Murphy is tremendous in this movie. The fact that she can Brittany hang Murphy's with Jack really Black's good. physical comedy, it's she's great. Well, that's the thing. They're, like, the two biggest things in the movie. So, of course, they collide. And it, like, almost makes sense on a comedic level. Yeah. That, like, that... Oh, I love that uh, Jay dropped the word cuckold. Because that's, like, the perfect, like, way to describe what happens. <laughs> I mean, Luke Wilson in this is this is just a prelude to his character from old school. Yes. Just a guy hanging out, just trying to get by. Pretty handsome, pretty good jawline. Wears a T-shirt pretty well. Yeah. And when he takes it off, he has way too good of a body for the lifestyle that he's leading. Right. I will say this movie does have a few early examples of what I think might be the only good Luke Wilson trick, which is saying something in like a pitifully genuine way. Which, like, when he's lying in bed with Alicia Vint and she's just like, I used to have a relationship like this where we would just talk for hours and we wouldn't have sex. We'd just lie here and talk. And Luke Wilson goes, you would? I love that. <laughs> it's like, it's so pathetic. But it's a good line. Really. Yeah. Um, That's like, they're, one of my favorite Luke Wilson lines is not from this movie, Um but like, and it's been a, like a defining moment and a defining line of my life is when he leans into Will Ferrell at the end of old school and like Will Ferrell's just like been punched in the throat. He's like, you're going to be all right there, big cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, he's such a melancholy actor. Um, but yeah, so you have these scenes tucked into this movie, which is all about like a will they, won't they between two people who are... Horrible people. Horrible people, people and you don't care. Horrible, sad, not funny people. Yeah. Yeah. But then my argument is, though, scene to scene, it's, like, kind of funny. Kind of. Sure. Like, there are enough good, like, you reference kicking and screaming, which is really, I think, smart. That's, like, more what this genre is. It's, like, that talky, like, what does it all mean 90s white privilege movie. And... But this movie is not you know, inquisitive it, remotely. I mean, well, it's, it's like accidentally like, I mean, inquisitive, maybe, just by virtue it, of like it believes itself to be like 
a slacker or a kicking and screaming right. or like, yeah, I think you even referenced like early Jim Jarmusch kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, Jay did. Or even Kevin Smith. Yeah. So, but I just don't think it's, I think scene to scene, they like, they figured out how to like do that, but the, there was no premise to this movie. No. That's what it lacks. Like those, those earlier movies by those better directors, like Clerks, like the, the whole conceit of that movie is like, he was supposed to have the day off. Yeah. And he was supposed to do all these things and he can't do them because he's stuck at work. Yeah, and it's just, it hasn't staked its ground clearly enough as one of those hangout movies. Like, it has some interesting sort of Portland ambiance to it, but, like, one of the things that would have made this movie or the book catch on in a culty way is, like, if it actually had some observations about, like, what it meant to be part of, like, grunge or post-grunge Pacific Northwest. And I just don't think, I mean, it maybe does incidentally because it was made here, but it doesn't really. Well, it's weird because it, it has this weird relationship and this weird sort of fictional relationship with New York City. Because, like, about yeah. a quarter of the movie takes place in New York City. For, for like, no real reason right. if Luke Wilson is the protagonist of the film. But then when the movie goes off to New York with her, but it also is still in Portland, it makes her, yes, like you said, a, a, the other protagonist. But you don't really like her enough, I don't think, that when it builds like her climax in New York is like being date raped. Yeah. Which is not like a, like that's not a, like a comedy thing right? that can be used, but that's, they play it for drama, but then you're like, well, what is this movie? Like this movie has Jack Black singing a a song called Jesus ranch in it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you're not psychologically close enough to her for the movie to like examine, like how horrible that is. It's just like something that happens and that's like gross. And can I like, can I make a weird observation about the movie and maybe the book? Sure. I think the movie kind of posits that she deserves it. Oh, yeah? Don't you think? Like, she, like, dicks over Luke Wilson and then, like, rides Jamie Kennedy's, like, Kurt Cobain coattails to New York and then, like, basically leaves him. And it, like, is revealed that she just uses people to, like, suck onto their success. She's like a succubus. And that... By the end of it, it's almost like she tried to do the same thing with this third guy, and he like ended up date raping her. Like, I mean, you deserve that's it. horrible. Like, but I bet if you read this book, it, I mean, it's fairly misogynistic in the way the character's drawn. Right. Well, this whole genre, if we can talk about it, is pretty misogynistic. Yeah, it's true. Weed time. Weed time it's is also pro time. And it knows nothing. But that's else. the thing. The foil. It's going back to my theory that the foil of these movies, it's women. And I don't know that I agree with that. It shouldn't be, but, but like, it's... but that like seems to be the case, and I think that's worth sort of looking at. Can I talk to you about a weird episode that kind of like reminds me of this in a little bit of a way? Sure. Have you seen that Taco Bell commercial where it's a girl and a guy, and it is saying they were stuck in the friend zone? Yeah. It's obvious they were meant for each other. Always side by side, but never together. Forever trapped in the friend zone. Until finally, they got together at Taco Bell. Check it out. I'm talking about the taco and burrito. Double the seasoned beef, fresh lettuce. That commercial itself is targeted at what people who are interested in what Taco Bell has to offer. Uh Uh-huh. You know, as part of their specials this season or whatever. And those people are probably like stoners you know, watching movies like we were watching on 420. But it also pervades this weird narrative that, like, maybe the women in your life, like, you're just in the friend zone with them and everything you believed about your relationship towards women, like, maybe your fucked up view is right. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's a weirdly kind of thing. And I feel like all these movies, like, it's playing off of this weed movie trope. Yeah. That's interesting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That like women are just the foils or the thing to, even when we get to how high, like the women in there are literally only sex objects. Right. Right. Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but if like these were people who were more adept socially and by extension, like able to communicate romantically or platonically with women like they'd be hanging out in bars like they'd be hanging out with larger groups of people they would not be like sitting by themselves like four dudes on a couch like those and then yes those people don't have particularly enlightened views on like 
social mores probably sure well that's like the weird thing about these movies and i wonder if like if there is an implicit relationship with marijuana and like this sort of asocial misanthropic behavior misanthropic but also sort of like sexist behavior so i don't know if that's intentional or not but it seems to be part of the lifestyle where it's like oh what's that chick doing why is she trying to ruin a good time why is she trying to use me i don't get it shall we go to our ratings here yeah so this movie i could very easily give it a bad bad but i might give it a bad good just because it's for the very reason that Jay wrote his piece, for the very reason that we talked about it, like it's interesting to see oh, all Dev. of these people in this like kind of hapless, also sort of amateurish movie. Um, oh, this movie, especially in the YouTube version of it, has so many booms in the shot yeah. and like markers on the floor. It's like it is a an IMDb goofs gold mine. Uh-huh. Um, but it's really interesting to see all these famous people kind of like bounce off of each other. So a bad, a bad good for me, probably. I, I'm definitely along there with you. Like I keep trying to make the argument for, I think that this movie has enough funny episodes and like, it's just amusing enough that you can put it on, you know? Also I short. Put it on and got th- all these movies are so short. short. <laughs> these movies are so, so short. Yep. All right, buddy. Should we uh, should we move on to another movie with just a nonsensical title? How high? Well, th- most of these movies they're all like weed puns. Yes, but half baked makes sense. Well, because it's like a half baked idea and movie. Yep. But how high? It's not set in a high school. No, but like that's the, the they make that joke in the movie where they're like, "I wonder how high our test scores can be." It's, I think it's referencing the their pun? academic performance. Oh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, because they like make, they like explain the joke to you, like in movie. I okay. Think. All right. My mistake. My mistake. Yeah. But how high pairs, uh, classic duo, <laughs> the men, uh, method and red. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. 2001, uh, written and directed by people who like have made random episodes of procedural network television, but not much else. <laughs> Um, and, and yeah, so this is a movie that, that, this one, I'll tell you what I liked, is just that this movie doesn't care. It just doesn't no. care what you think. One of the things I found kind of irritating about Half-Baked is the way that they were sort of insistent on leading what it presumed to be an audience of non-stoners into a very, like, conventional room of stoners, and this right. movie just doesn't care. Method Man is like a world-class botanist, like making all kinds of stuff, selling people... Who doesn't believe in like the printed word. <laughs> right. Uh, he believes that all books are lies. He only no, he only believes in what he already knows. Half of it's bullshit and the other half is lies. So let's get into the inciting incident for this movie. Yeah. Which you're going to have to like help me out here. I, I, I know that the steps of it, I just don't necessarily understand like what happens. Oh, so they're called Silas and Jamal. Method Man is Silas and Red Man is Jamal. Uh-huh. And they have this friend, Ivory. And Ivory, like, meets a woman on the internet, but then, like, before meeting her, grows, like, a weird unibrow and, like, gets extensions in his hair. And she's so, like, repulsed by this when they finally meet in real life that she leaves him. And then he smokes weed because he's sad yeah watching field of dreams by himself watching field of dreams by himself and he catches his hair on fire and he burns alive yeah uh until he like works up enough inertia to fall out the window and then either still being on fire or hitting the ground with some force uh kills him but we later learn i don't think this is a spoiler it doesn't matter not only not only did he burn alive and fall out of like a fifth story window. He also was fine and then couldn't feel his legs, but then he looked up and he was hit by a bus because he, he'd fallen into the street, yeah. which is th- this movie doesn't do anything lightly. No, there's a subtlety in this movie, which I think, I think the, the previous movie to, to go back to my original question, bong water is a, again, a movie made for like a, about stoners. Mm hmm. 
And this movie's definitely a movie like for stoners. Sure. Sure. Because like the comedy is so just like hit you over the head and did you giggle a little at that? I'm gonna do it a second time, still laughing. Here's a third. It's relentless in a way that half baked is not. It is relentless, but I think there's something like weirdly ambitious just about how relentless it is both in it's like gags, but also when it's like weird politics that are, I was texting you about this as I was watching this afternoon. Like they're on one hand sort of progressive, but on the other hand, they're like not. Yeah. I mean, well, what it reminded me. It has a progressive take on race, I think, but it does not have a progressive take on humans and uh, And gender in particular. Well, because what it's like is it has the attitude, the ferociousness, the politics of like a Wu-Tang song or a Method Man, Red Man song. Yes. Which is just like, I see the world. I know my lot in the world. um, And here it comes. It's just an onslaught. Um, Yeah. It's as if Method Man and Red Man are doing an extended song. The lyrics, uh, (laughs) it's the lyrics to which is like, I got into Harvard. Yeah. How high? But there's how, no subtlety. How high were my test scores? And, how high? And much like, you know, this era of hip-hop music, there's no subtlety and, and women don't come out well. Yeah. Oh, so then we get to the next part of this strange mythology of this story. So the guy who's been killed three different ways, Method Man acquires some of his ashes and, like, puts the ashes in the dirt of a weed plant that he's growing, yeah. calls it ivory, smokes it, and Ivory's ghost appears and can communicate with anyone who has smoked this particular strain. This is a rule, apparently. And, and it's a, one of the rules of the movie. And Ivory, now that he's dead and has contact with all these like famous people, he just knows everything now. So he can give them answers to this test. And the test they're taking is like their college. There's a weird American system that we have in play called the uh, like collegiate entrance exam. Well, except I've got it here. It's the testing for higher credentials. It's the THC test. Oh, yeah, yeah. there it is. <laughs> They've always had high aspirations. Got blunt, got weed. Now they're taking a shot at higher education. If I study high, take the test high, get high scores. Right. <laughs> Congratulations. These scores are going to get you into any college in the country. Join us at Reparations Technical Institute and learn hatred for the white devil in a relaxed campus atmosphere. Next. Taking a vow of celibacy. Next. Harvard. Music, artists, and the women. Mm. Shit, I gotta roll up that joint, dog. Because it's, it's about affirmative action. Like, that's the hook of the, at least the opening of this politically, mm-hmm. is the reason that they're there is affirmative action. There's this whole conversation that right. uh, Fred Willard yeah. and um, that guy from that one episode where Joey has to dance on Friends and who plays Dean Kane. Oh, yeah. Um, what's that guy's name? And he's also the, uh, Baba the principal for two. Oba yeah, he's also the principal name. for two years uh, or two seasons of Dawson's Creek. And he's in that thing you do. He plays the bellhop. Oh, yeah. Yep. I like that guy. But anyway. Um, yeah, you're right. It's about affirmative action. It's it's very it's a lot mm. like Head of State. It's uh, like a white conspiracy sort of that leads to a fish out of water story at a stuffy right. institution. And it's weirdly also a callback to, are you familiar with the 80s film Soul Man? With C. Thomas Howell? With C. Thomas Howell th- yeah. and James Earl Jones, mm-hmm. where because of affirmative action, C. Thomas Howell dyes himself black and like pretends that he is a black person to get into Harvard. And this movie is like, it's a weird play on that because it's almost like a call and response kind of thing, isn't it? It's like, this is the way this movie should have been made, Mm. guys. Like, don't be fucking racist. Just like, no. If you want to make this point that, like, affirmative action's, like, a strange thing, don't put a white guy in blackface. It's the last thing you should do. But this movie seems like a fun sort of antidote to that. That's an interesting observation. I like that. Wherein these guys... Because, like, the, the whole point of the movie is these guys just bring a fresh perspective and their stoner culture to this, like, weird Ivy League mainstream that the movie creates mm-hmm. and, like, thus makes it literally through the, the air molecules makes it a better place. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And so in a lot of ways, it's a college movie, though, right? 
Like from twenty. Oh, it's definitely like a Van Wilder. yeah, Yeah. But I think what works about it, unlike a Van Wilder, I was certainly reminded of Van Wilder, is that I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, but it's it you know, it comes down to like even the simplest of visuals. By the time they have wreaked all of their havoc on everyone with like horrifying pranks that make no sense, getting everyone everyone high, every single person yeah. in the movie high. This movie How high? <laughs> extremely. This movie never looks to you. No characters in the movie look to you, the audience, and they're like, Did you get that? Do you like what we did no. there? Aren't you with There's aren't you no with us winks. in the way that we feel about these people that we're making fun of? It never does that. Even like down to the visual, like in its close-ups of people being made fun of, it's just you're just watching the sum total of their destruction. And it's iconoclastic and insane and kind of joyful. Right. Yeah. There, there's a lot of joy in this movie. And I think there's a lot of like almost like tender moments. Like I was really taken aback by there's a scene where Method Man is waking up Red Man. Mm-hmm. And at first he like holds up his like alarm clock going off and Red Man doesn't stir. <laughs> so he then picks up one of his like big speakers from his stereo system and puts it like right next to his his ear mm-hmm. and red man still does not stir so while the music still plays and method man holds the speaker he then lights a huge blunt and smokes enough of it that he like gets into the music and then starts waving it in front of red man's nose to wake him up and it does and then he just offers him like if he gets up like a little bit more like almost like a mother getting a son up for school in the morning sure. like if he gets up a little bit more he'll give him more of the blood yeah. do you smell this stack of pancakes just... under your nose yeah, exactly yeah. it was just like here's the reason to like we gotta we gotta start the day now and here's the reason to wake up in the morning it's true that's nice i mean it's tender and method man is a pretty charming i think red man is like way out of his depth like as an actor but there's this moment in the movie where because he's the expert botanist and and the uh the woman who he's supposed to partner off with who of course has to break up with the waspy douchey captain of the row crew she has this moment where she's just like still water runs deep huh you really do know some stuff you sort of like quieter member of the duo and yes that's exactly like he's just he seems like he knows more and like dialogue comes easy to him whereas red man is just sort of like more cartoonish so can I make a case for this movie that it is, like, weirdly progressive, despite its best efforts? I would like to hear that, yeah. So a college movie traditionally has the tropes of, of the end, at the end, like, the outcast guy, in this case, Method Man. I say Method Man's probably the protagonist of this film. They are both at some times, but anyway. But usually in these movies, the protagonist reaches uh, triumph and gets the girl because of like some like ruining something for the the male antagonist right the uh you know greg marmalard the like whoever is on the other side of the receiving end yeah, here the guy who plays bart in this movie the guy who plays bart who's the quintessential like college rich douchebag but in this movie because i think it it wants to give that one girl that method man's after like a little bit more agency it's almost like the re- the climax of the film is seeing that she succeeded. It's about her success, not Bart's failure. And she sort of picks Method Man because he was more supportive of like her thing. That's true. Yeah, that's Lar- it's Lark. It's a weirdly like she's uh, she's like an archaeologist, and she's proving that like these right. Ben Franklin artifacts really are. And the whole the whole set piece at the end um, where everyone gets high is her presentation. And she's like, right. yeah, I did this. So they're making the situation better. They're not crashing the death mobile into the stands at the end of animal house. Right. They're like making sure that this girl gets the, her just due, And they're doing that by putting pot into like the air supply. Right. <laughs> and so everyone's just like chill about it. But I think a lesser movie would have had like some gross out thing like when the guy shits himself in Van Wilder and then he gets uh, Amy Smart, you know. Yeah. But it didn't it didn't resort to that sort of gross out humor. What it does resort to, though, is gross out humor in like, I think the funniest one of the funniest visual bits I think I've ever seen in this kind of college movie, which is because they believe they just need to get some dead person's ashes to like 
you know, get because they at one point they run out of the ivory weed that's making them smart. Yeah. And that's the whole point of this movie. They're in Harvard for some reason. But you forget and... that. The funny thing about this movie is that it's a stoner movie in the sense that, like, it forgets what it was about 10 minutes ago all the time. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that Ivory is a ghost that can be summoned is, like, I texted you and was like, it's like Don Cheadle and the Family Man. Like, the movie forgets that it even did that for 45 But then it comes back time. when it, like, does be like, oh, yeah, we did yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. But then anyway, they run out of that weed, so they need to, like, get another ghost weed. So they dig up the body of John Quincy Adams, who's, like, still looking pretty moist. Yeah. Like, even having been in the ground for, like, some time now. And there's this excruciatingly, like, gross and funny scene where they attempt to, like, remove his skeleton arm. Yeah. And it takes them, like, three, like, sickeningly sounding attempts yeah. to, like, do it. And they can't even, like, they can't. It's, like, it's so gross that nobody, like, on screen can handle yeah. it. Yeah. And they're trying and to stick it in a blender so they can smoke him. And that's the thing. <laughs> It follows up that visual gag of them trying to rip John Quincy Adams' uh, arm from the rest of his body with then a like a human hand, like a pretty like moist looking human hand in a blender, and then you just watch it get blended out. Oh my god! It's pretty funny. It doesn't though. care. It doesn't get. I was like, I was, I was raffling. I was lolling yeah. when this scene happens. And this is, I want to give this movie props because there are a lot of ways in which I don't think it's good, but we're talking about like cult movies here and the genre of like cult movies and half baked has the real problem of like looking to a larger audience, like hoping beyond hope that like people will like it. This movie is not aimed at someone who actually like thinks it's bad that they're grinding up John Quincy Adams. Like it's a true cultly made movie aimed at a cult and uh, i think it's perfectly befitting of the status it has can we turn toward a rating i'd love that i think it's a pretty clear bad good um because yeah like i said it forgets its plot all the time there are definitely some true eye-rolly moments the the treatment of like women and especially these prostitutes that come in and mike epps is their pimp for no reason um, yeah, that's a weird. The two weird moments I think in this movie are that, like the Mike Epps character, and then also like the weird has been there forever RA with the uh, herpes. Yeah, that's bizarre. Like, there's no reason that needs to be. And in the I don't movie. love Redman's solo stuff. There's like the weird question of again of like when he's like hallucinating having sex with the women's studies teachers and just all these like hallucinations of like who but can that's, see like, again, these. I think, I think that's a funny scene for a couple of reasons because they're in a women's class and the the woman is the the professor is lecturing and her, the thesis of her lecture before it transitions into this fantasy scene is about how men historically and society has only viewed women as sexual objects and then he immediately goes into that like exactly what she's talking yeah. about so don't you think can't you give it like that awareness of its own like it's it's its own sort of adherence to these hyperbolized tropes. I guess I can, but I mean that's a lot of intellectualizing to do. But I think it's intentional. Like they wouldn't. He could have been talking, or she could have been talking about anything else, and she it could have been like, "Wow, what a hot teacher!" And then had that dream. But it went out of its way to point out how sexist that trope is. That's true. That's true. And then it pulls back to find he's just embarrassing himself. Right. But it, so but in I a way that doesn't aware. make any like any sense. Like anyway, um, I'm gonna have to say that I think this movie is a soft good. And guy. I knew that you were because you've treated our some of our most insane cult material, for instance, Sleepaway Camp, as good good before when it's clearly bad good. I think no. I think this it's a fine addition to both the weed genre and the weird co- the the non-traditional college student space it's, i don't know if it's a fine edition i think it's like a bizarre lesser edition a clear bad good no i think it's like it's bizarre enough to be like pretty good 
I'd watch this movie definitely again. So would I. That's why I'm calling it bad. If it was good. on like it's probably like if I'm watching Comedy Central at eleven thirty on a Wednesday night and like you're how high is on, like I'll probably You're put describing it on. a bad good movie. The exact instance you're describing is a bad good instance. I don't know. This one, especially after watching these other two, which are just like, you know, frankly half baked mm-hmm. and smells a bit of bong water. Yeah. Um this one was like a welcome sort of palate cleanser. I agree with you there. Buddy, I think we're at the end. Pal, uh, I think you're I think you're right. Um, hey, this has been such a pleasure. I let's let's do more of these. Podcasts? Yeah. I think we should, and I think we should publish them at uh, berealpodcast.com. And you can find them. You can find the podcast, which is Be Real. Be Real Guys No More. Um, at on iTunes. We are now the Be Real Guys. Yeah, Noah and I retain that identity, but the podcast is merely Be Real. Anyway, yeah. Listen to past episodes of the show. Buddy, it's been my pleasure.